This morning we are in our 13th week walking through the book of 1 Peter. We only have two more messages if you're keeping track. Two more messages left in our series that we've entitled Living in Hope. If you've been with us, you're welcome to visit our website or our podcast. You can download any of the previous 12, help you catch up to where we are. But in this five-chapter letter that Peter writes, he's writing to a group of churches, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And he writes them to encourage them and to exhort them. And by proxy, he writes to encourage and exhort us to live out our faith in Jesus Christ, to walk out our faith in a world that is hostile to what we believe, in a world that will reject the claims of our God, that will reject our worldview, and ultimately reject our King. So Peter writes this letter addressing his friends as foreigners and exiles, a theme that he comes back repeatedly to, a theme I keep reminding you of, Because he's trying to grow them in their understanding that this world is not their home. And friends, it's not our home either. We're not called to be comfortable here. We're not meant to fit in. And I say this every week to us to remind us that as much as we try, we will never find ultimate fulfillment here. As much as we try, we'll even struggle to find satisfaction here. And that this world that we live in will always lead us to a and a hoping and a desire that it can neither fulfill nor answer. C.S. Lewis would write in a number of his writings that this is his proof of the existence of God, that we would always long for something more than we could find here. And why? Because our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our home is heaven. And yet we're not there yet. Jesus has not yet returned. So Peter writes us a letter to tell us then, how should we then relate to the world? What do we do while we're here? So Peter writes in chapter 1, that we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been born again. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted that His Son died on the cross for you and and has sacrificially paid for your debt. If you've been born again, we walked into the book of John and essentially put out that this idea of being born again is believing that Jesus Christ's death is sufficient for your sin. If you've been born again, you've been born into a new and a living hope, Peter writes. And that's why we've entitled this series this. What does it look like to walk in a living hope? To realize that Jesus is alive and He's moving And he's still at work drawing people into salvation. And so Peter writes to us that this living hope, that this belief in Jesus, a living God, could carry us through any suffering, could carry us through any hardship, could carry us through any rejection. So he calls us to this living hope in spite of opposition that we wouldn't retract back as many Christians in the past have done. We'd build little holy hostels off to the side and isolate ourselves from society. No, the Bible doesn't call us to that. The Bible calls us to live boldly for Jesus Christ, proclaiming His salvation, and that that salvation would root in our lives and would become available to anyone who would call on His name. And we'd trust that salvation while suffering. So we've moved along in this letter. Peter has continued to build a case 
that living in this world that's not ours, we're called to completely surrender to Jesus Christ, even to the point of suffering. And that through our sufferings, that he would be exalted. And through our sufferings, we'd suffer with tremendous hope. And that that would be our testimony. In chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's our example. And that our suffering might bring others to God. Our suffering. Now friends, there's no question about the fact that when Peter writes this, he's talking about persecution. But that's not the only kind of suffering that exists, is there? Now there's plenty of suffering to do on the human level. Plenty of it. And that's when we lean into it as believers and say that there's a calling in our lives to suffer well. One of the most beautiful things about Christianity is we have a theology of suffering that says when things aren't going our way, when we're really struggling, will we trust Jesus Christ or will we let it rock our foundation? And friends, what the Bible would exhort us to is when everything shakes, when everything crumbles, when everything begins to fall apart, when we cling to Jesus, that's the greatest testimony we could have before the world. Suffering well. And so as Peter has put this before us, this idea that Jesus suffered on our behalf, but became the example of suffering for us. When he comes to chapter 4, which we're walking into this morning, he brings all of this to application for us and testifies to what this might look like. How then should we live, as Francis Schaeffer put it? Turn with me into 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. I encourage you to bring out your Bible. If you don't have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. We even put the page numbers so that you can get there faster than the smart Christians sitting next to you, so you can cheat. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, depending on the version of the Bible you're carrying, some start this as finally, but what stands here is this. Peter's drawing this section to a conclusion. That this argument of submitting your lives to Jesus Christ, which leads you to suffer, which leads Christ as the ultimate example of suffering, comes to a conclusion here in this. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, reminding us what Jesus did on our behalf, both to save us and as our example, Peter writes this, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He gives you this imperative. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. This is the exact same thing Paul writes in Philippians 2. When he says, have this mind among yourself. So what does it mean? Since Christ suffered for us, we should be prepared to suffer for others. That's what Peter writes here. That this should be our mind. That this is the imperative here. Peter writes, think this way. We should be prepared to lead our lives in such a way that our suffering would always point to Jesus Christ. And friends, I don't know where you are this morning, but I can tell you that there are some of us in this room that suffering happened yesterday. 
And there are some of us in this room that suffering is happening to right now. And there are some of you that will suffer this afternoon. And some of you will suffer tomorrow. Because it's never far from our address. Whether it's behind us or before us. And the call of Christ here is that when we suffer, regardless of the cause or reason, that we make it about Jesus Christ and Him being exalted. And so Peter puts us this way. He says, think this way. He gets practical and so will we. Jesus suffered. He was our example So we step out to lead a life marked by His death and marked by His resurrection. We are called to suffer. I don't know how many of you know this story, but when Pam was pregnant with Claire, we went through a cancer scare. We went through a cancer scare that suggested that they might want to operate on my then-pregnant wife. You don't normally like to operate on pregnant people. It was a scary situation Things obviously worked out. God was more than gracious with us, as he always is. But I remember getting a call from one of our college students who said very kindly and gently, and I'll quote him nicely, he said, man, I was really hoping you guys would have cancer. I said, what? He goes, I just knew how you'd suffer through that. I just knew what a testimony that would be to all of us. Uh, I'm still like, what? Why would you want that for us? But I appreciated the testimony. That that's the call for Christians that whatever, whenever you should go to a doctor's office, whatever they should read to you, that that's a testimony that we would all suffer well regardless of the cause or reason. What might suffering look like to us? Sure, it might mean you get insulted. It might mean you lose a friend here or there. There's some relational impact outside of health ramifications to you or your family. What might it cost you? For do you know how often, and I'm just honest with you, you know how often I back away from a conversation about eternity because I'm afraid about, of being awkward? What would it cost me? Awkwardness? Is that a high price to pay? I once come, came across a church welcome ministry they were greeters in a church, and this was their motto. We are, what, we are awkward so that you don't have to be. What a tremendous motto for a greeting ministry. That we're going to step into awkward so that you never have to be awkward. We're going to fill that space for you. And what a great calling for us as believers. That we'd be willing to step into awkward so that other people don't have to be. That we would bridge that gap into their life that maybe they wouldn't even have to ask the reason for the hope that we have. Maybe we'd step into that and have the awkward conversation that steps into somebody's life and maybe it's in an elevator with a pizza guy and just step into that and say, man, how are you doing? And do you know the Lord? To love people enough to be awkward. There's a pastor I know that when they baptize new believers in the church, they they uh, give the believer a chance to give a testimony. And immediately following that, they give the guy who led that man to the Lord a chance to give a testimony. You know why that becomes important to the church? Because they want the story to show up every single time that it was awkward to talk to somebody about Jesus. Because with every testimony, they lean into the reality, man, I just, 
I wasn't sure what to do, and I prayed about it a hundred times, and I finally just said, Joe, man, you know the Lord. And I felt so awkward. Friends, the first sentence, the first words out of your mouth will always, always be awkward. We just need to own that. And it's worth it every single time. What might the gospel cost us? None of us are going to get beaten. Most of us won't lose our jobs. What would it cost us? Peter writes, calling us to step out, to be forward, and in our culture even to be awkward. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. And the price is cheap. Peter says this should be our mindset. That we'd arm ourselves, prepared to suffer, prepared to struggle, prepared to be awkward. To step into that space because Jesus is worth it. And he step, continues on saying, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Unless you believe that this phrase means that suffering will lead you to stop sinning, which is any number of the heresies that can come out of this book, it doesn't mean that. That's why Peter continues on and brings it to a point in verse 2 by saying, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And what Peter articulates here to you is that when you take on this mindset of Jesus Christ, when it starts to become about more about Him and His glory than me and my comfort, that my life is marked by Jesus Christ's death and His resurrection more than it is about my acceptance, that Christ is exalted and sin and human passions in my life start to be put away Does that mean I'll stop sinning? No. But there is a theological statement called mortification we've got to lean into, which suggests that sin ought to start dying in our lives. That the closer we move to Jesus, the more we put sin behind us. And this shouldn't be hard to explain, it should be quite evident. But there are many things I used to struggle with that I don't struggle with anymore. That should be true of all of us. Peter gives us a good list of things. In verse 3, things that should be behind us as mature believers. And this is what he writes. For the time that has passed suffices. He's talking about the things that are behind us. That what has happened behind us was enough. That the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Again, articulating that our our flesh would drive us. That we would feed our flesh. And he lists them out. Living in sensuality. Passions. Drunkenness. Orgies. Drinking parties. And lawless idolatry. What Peter puts before us, believers in Jesus Christ, is put sin behind you. Now whether you're guilty of any of these now, I would tell you stop. But I got a sneaking suspicion this isn't a list for a lot of us. I don't know when the last time you struggled with drinking parties was. Although there could be some of us. 
put sin away is how Peter starts to get to this argument. Put it away. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11 talking about giving into the sins of the flesh, talking about identifying with them. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says, And such were some of you, meaning this identified you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, don't let your past, don't let your history define you. If we were to take a poll, you would not believe the stories we've got in this room. You would not believe the sin that is behind some of the folks that we sit and walk with every day. And you know the beauty of it is? It's in the past. And why that becomes important for us is when we, you're called in the gospel to lead a life that's defined by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not defined by the sins of your past. It's defined by Jesus Christ's redemption. So that whatever you've made of your life prior to Christ, or even in Christ, was all put away at the cross on your behalf. That Jesus Christ's death was sufficient. That's why we don't believe in purgatory, as could have been preached in last week's text. That some way you'd have to still pay for your sin. No! Friends, if you could pay for it at all, Christ wasn't sufficient. And he was. We put away our past. We put away our sin. Because we were washed. And we were sanctified. We were declared righteous by our God and our Father. We were justified by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker as Peter writes. The world will never understand this you're not supposed to be understood. This is why in 4 and 5, he continues on, with respect to this, they, were surprised, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter writes, if you lead a changed life, the world will never, never appreciate this. Now, if you became a believer of Christ in college and you changed and your friends watched you change, there's hardship in that. And if you became a believer as an adult and you have an adult friends who are watching your life and you change, there's hardship in that. Why? Because the world will not tolerate your push towards holiness. Once I had a job as a college kid, co-worker came up to me very angrily one day, got in my face and said, hey, why don't you cuss like the rest of us? I never understood why he was angry with me. Never understood why my lack of colorful language was offending him so much. But I'll tell you this, he definitely maligned me. And just for the record, I did have to look that word up in the dictionary. It does mean to insult you to your face. The world will always put off believers who are striving for holiness. Always. That's why Peter writes to us, reminding us that submitting to Christ requires us not to respond to evil with evil, but with a blessing. So that when that happens, you don't jump back in his face and make fun of him. 
But you choose to love them. Why? Because the cause of Christ is more significant than my pride or my ego. I submit myself to Jesus Christ and I walk exalting Him. Why? Because in verse 5, we will all give an account of our lives. Judgment is real. The irony of this, two years ago, my first Mother's Day here, I preached the reality of hell. That's ironic. Here we are back on hell. Judgment is real, friends. It is because the Bible says it is, and we believe it. So don't just look at judgment and consider the fact that because you know Jesus Christ, you're fine. That's not the way we look at it. We consider judgment and consider the fact that everybody will give an account for their life. Everybody will. So we want to step into that, into the lives of other people, so that when they give an account, their account might include Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's calling us to here. That we'd be able to endure evil. That we'd be able to endure malignment. Why? So that when they see the judge spoken of in the book of Revelation put before you in 1 Corinthians, that that testimony is not, I'm a good person, or I did good things, or I grew up in a Christian family. But the testimony is, I knew Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, and I submitted my life unto Him. That in that moment, not based on my righteousness or my works, that God would look at me and say, welcome into my kingdom. I love you so much. You have no idea how much I love you. Rather than the opposite. Friends, Peter is pressing this on us in great application that we would suffer even temporarily on this planet so that others would not suffer eternity. Friends, this should make us bold. It should make us bold. The call here, and it comes back to it over and over and over again, is to live a life that's counter, counter to our culture. To be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ and to return evil with blessings. Why? Because Jesus Christ is worth it. And the price that you will pay will be cheap. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, Peter writes, that those judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And again, we get a verse that can be taken about 10,000 directions. What I believe Peter's doing here is he's contrasting the lives of unbelievers in verses 4 and 5 with the lives of those who believed and died. There's a reality here when you lean into the gospel that Peter believed enough in Jesus that he preached Jesus. And he preached Jesus to some pagan sinners. And he preached Jesus to some guys who were living some outlandish lifestyles who would give their lives unto Jesus Christ. And as a process of natural course, as will happen to all of us, they died. What Peter is putting before us is that these people who lived in sin but accepted Jesus and are now dead or awaiting something good. 
They're awaiting being purified. They're awaiting being joined with their Father because they've been purified, cleansed, sanctified, and justified by Jesus. This is why the Gospel is preached. Because someday the people you preach to will die. Just as you and I will die. Say the Lord should come back today, which I vote for, by the way. We're taking a poll. I'm in. So is Paula. We preach so that more will be found in Christ. We preach because the day exists when all will give an account. We preach. And Paul continue, Peter continues in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. That the time of Christ's return is nearing. And friends, should you read any of the early writings outside of the Bible, you would find that this one thought carried the disciples and carried the early believers like nothing else. They thoroughly, wholly, and completely trusted that the return of Christ was near. I had the privilege of attending Dallas Seminary. While there, I got to study under several iconic professors if you like to study nerdy biblical theology. One of the interesting things about that is the number of my professors, even on their deathbed, believing that Christ would come back before they died. Like, brothers got 10 minutes left, still clinging to Jesus. Still thinking, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. I may have 10 breaths left, but I think he's coming now. And guys, I don't know how old you are or what you project with the rest of your life, but he has not come back yet. Which means he still has a need for you, a cause for you, a role for you, a place for you to be involved in building his kingdom. Because someday it will all come to an end. These men believed it wholeheartedly. Peter believed it. And this is truly a, this is not my home kind of statement. The end of all things is at hand. So Peter gives us four imperatives. Pray, he says in verse 4, pray. Verse 7, therefore be controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As you live in a world hostile to your faith, you must stay connected to God. What Peter writes here, the imperative here is pray. That you must pray. So he includes this call for us that we'd be sober-minded, that we'd be clear about our thinking. And that we'd be self-controlled as we reach out to our Father in Heaven. That we'd be engaging our God constantly in a relationship. That that would be the thing that would carry us. That that would be the thing that would fill us. That that would be the thing that would make us whole. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, by the way, a tremendous Bible verse that people who live overseas in hard areas cling to. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What Paul writes here, and very literally in some parts of the world, your, your outer self is wasting away. 
Now that could be because you're being persecuted. It could be because you're being abused. But the reality is it's true for all of us. Old age will force your body to waste away. You will suffer. And yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. Why? Peter says pray that you'd be renewed day by day by the Father. That your connection here would be your lifeline. That's why Jesus taught in John 15 that He is the vine, we are the branches. That when we abide in Him, we live life. And when we don't, we accomplish nothing. It's our connection to the Father that renews us. It's our connection to the Father that allows us to suffer. It's our connection to the Father that causes us to not lose heart. Regardless of which hand we're drawn and dealt in life, it's our connection to the Father. From time to time, I like to read the book of Job. You know why? Because sometimes having a four-year-old and a two-year-old is exhausting. Sometimes I think, man, this is hard. And I'm reminded, well, I don't have boils. That's an upside. My sheep aren't, you know, aren't disappearing. I still have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. We're renewed day by day by the Father. And secondly, Peter calls us to love in verse 8. Above all, keeping loving one another, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In this letter, Peter calls us to love one another, even like one another. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. He calls us to be a spiritual family together, this is the love that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13. That we'd be patient. That we would be kind. And then our love towards one another. This should be abundantly clear in the scripture. That we would move close enough to one another to actually see and experience each other's imperfections. Friends, we will absolutely sin against each other. Which means this. If you've spent any time in a church and somebody's abused you, hurt you, not met your expectations, welcome to the club. That's all of us. Too often people use that as an excuse and not miss the fact that the call there is to, to love imperfect people, to love people who fall short, that we would live out the gospel towards one another. That is, you hurt me, wound me, that I would love you earnestly, meaningfully, and that love would cover a multitude of sins. It takes for granted that we would absolutely sin against one another and that we're called to love each other earnestly. And in verse 9, he continues. He says, we're called to show hospitality Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Literally, this means to welcome one another, to welcome strangers. In the New Testament world, this would be described as offering free food and lodging to one another. Often it's referred to tabling. This is part of the reason why we started community groups, which are coming back in a couple weeks. If you've never been a part of one, we'd love to have you involved. Why? Because when Peter writes, show hospitality to one another. They had the act of us gathering together, welcoming one another. 
is an important biblical act. And it does say without grumbling, by the way. Why? Because we sin against one another. So we show hospitality that we keep inviting each other into our homes. And finally, Peter calls us to use our gifts in verses 10 through 11. In verse 10, he says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied grace. What Peter writes is, whatever gift God has given you, and he does gift the church, we talk about that in our membership class, God gifts the church, and we're called to use them. For if you have a gift in this body and you don't use it, we'll never be what we could be. And people will suffer because they may need the gift that you have. Lean into that in verse 11. For whoever speaks is the one who speaks oracles of God. That God's calling some of us to speak truth to some of us. That we're called to speak truth to one another. Now whether that's me stepping into your life and speaking truth to you, reminding you of who you are in Jesus Christ, rather than what you would think about yourself, or whether that's me speaking truth into your life, as opposed to stepping into your life and calling sin, sin, we need that, friends. We need it badly. And that's not just my role. The Bible would suggest that there are a lot of us who are gifted in this way. As one who would speak the oracles of God and whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That for us to be an active church, we need people to serve. That they'd be willing to step out and honor one another. And that sometimes that service is going to cost you something. I think now of a handful of women in our nursery right now holding babies who at different points have held most of mine who miss services. Or people who serve to allow leaders to lead during Awana. They serve because it builds up the body and it allows other people to fulfill their roles. Friends, we're called to use our gifts. Why? This is the best part in 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You want to know why you speak the truth to one another? Because it glorifies God. You want to know why you're called to serve? Because it glorifies God. So whether you leave here and love a third grader, a fifth grader, hold a baby, or just speak love and truth to somebody, friends, it glorifies God. And to Him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's doing in this fourth chapter is he's continuing on in his argument that as we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, that we would do so even to the point of suffering, following His example, and that we would arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter writes, think this way. Thursday, I started going through our directory, praying for everyone listed in our directory. And this week, I'm going to continue praying that. That God would give you an opportunity to be exceedingly awkward about sharing your faith this week. That God would give you the opportunity through suffering 
to talk about what he's doing in your life. If you reach a moment at any point this week and it feels super awkward, no, I'm praying for you in that moment. That I've asked God, I've, I've pleaded to God on your behalf for that moment where you could step into it and feel even a tiny bit of awkwardness or pain so that you could step into that, that you would fill the gap to proclaim Jesus Christ, to proclaim His glories, because the end is near. It's at hand. That this would be our thinking. Christ suffered and He died for me. So I will be prepared to suffer for others, to even be awkward for others. I'm praying that for you this week. Actively. Friends, the end is near. That, that should be our encouragement. Therefore, we should pray, love, welcome, and serve to the glory of God together that Christ would be exalted. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this book of 1 Peter. Father, I believe wholeheartedly you called us into this book. As the culture of our country is changing, indeed our world, Father, there's an increased challenge to walking out of biblical faith, to claiming Jesus Christ, to trusting His name, and proclaiming His truth. Father, I pray that as a church, You would call us, each and every one of us in this room, Father, You'd call us to testify to Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray on behalf of us that you'd give each of us an opportunity to step into that awkward moment, to step into the suffering part of life, Father, where we have the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. I pray that each and every one of those moments, Father, we'd recognize it was you. And Father, some of us, I should say some of these guys, will probably hit that moment out of the park. And some of us will shrink back But Father, you're gracious and you're sufficient. So Father, I pray that you would give us great courage and boldness and understand that when we fall short, your grace never does. God, we love you so much. And we thank you for the sufficiency of your son, that it's in him we live and move and have our being. It's in his name we pray. Amen.